It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. Considering everything that's been going on in the league, I knew the best person to talk to that I know is Tim Bontemps. He is now a national writer for the Washington Post, and he previously worked for the New York Post, which means he spent a lot of time covering the Brooklyn Nets, and of course with their turnover firing Lionel Hollins and reassigning Billy King. I really wanted to talk with him, and as a as kind of a benefit of his current job, he's in Texas right now, kind of following the Cleveland Cavaliers. So we actually start with Cleveland, then we move to the Nets and talk about the Sixers and a whole bunch of other stuff. The whole conversation runs about an hour and a half, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, man. Happy to do it. So I figure we're going to talk about the Nets soon enough, but you're doing a pretty cool thing right now, which is that you're you're kind of following the Cavs through Texas, which included the really exciting game last night. And I think that's that's where we might as well start. What what were your thoughts being there in person for that overtime game? I mean, LeBron James is just so much fun to watch. You know, people understand we are starting to analyze his game, and Seth Bartnow recently wrote a really interesting piece about you know has LeBron kind of reached the end of his prime and you know we started to see the the beginnings of a decline phase for him as a, in his career which is certainly reasonable when you think about the many 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 thousands of minutes and the, the all the games he's played and all the huge huge moments he's been in already in his career but that guy in person still puts on a show like no one in the league even including Steph Curry Steph is unbelievable to watch and He's understandably captivating, but LeBron's ability at his size to do everything on the court is really just amazing. And the the dunk he had on Devin Harris at the end of regulation in last night's game, just a perfect example of that. I mean, that, that just came out of nowhere and just brought the house down. Even on the road, people just couldn't couldn't believe what they'd seen but but yeah i mean he's he, he's a great show and 
getting to see Dirk in person is always fun. I mean, that was just a that was just a really great great game. And you know, if the rest of this, you know, I'm, like you said, I'm going to be with the Cavs or through Texas. They're playing San Antonio tomorrow. Then they play in Houston on Friday, and then they play Golden State in Cleveland. I'm going to that game on Monday. If the next three games are anywhere close to that one, it'll be be a very enjoyable few days for me. I've always had kind of trouble putting together with LeBron to pe- to convey to people who haven't seen him in person because when you see him in person, you understand all this pretty quickly. Is he combines this kind of seemingly impossible combination of physical skills. You know, that he's six foot nine, he's built like Carl Malone, yet for a period of time he was arguably the fastest guy in the league and one of the strongest, with one of the best basketball minds of all time. Like that's what makes LeBron so special, is that a lot of the choices that you have to make, like if you were thinking about like creating a player in a video game or whatever, you have to make choices between athleticism and intelligence or skill or whatever. And yeah, he's not a perfect player, but with LeBron, you didn't have to make any of those choices. No, no. I mean, I was just going to say, it was funny when you were saying that. LeBron is a creative player. If you play a video game, if you play NBA 2K16, say, what does just about everybody create? They, they essentially create LeBron, a guy who can you know, six seven, six eight, six nine, that can handle the ball and shoot and, you know, can go inside and score and can, can do everything. I mean, there, there's, like you said, there's nothing he, can, he can't do physically. And he is the smartest player in the league, probably, in terms of basketball IQ, and just is an unbelievable presence on the court. He really isn't – he's someone you have to see in person to believe because, like you said, he really just does things that that no one else is capable of doing and, and very few people have ever been capable of doing. You know, I think – I don't know if it was Bob Ryan, but, but somebody had said that there's been three people over the course of the NBA that have just been truly on another level physically. One is Will Chamberlain, one is Shaq, and one is LeBron. And I, I think that's true in that those three guys just in a sport full of incredibly athletic and superhumanly sized people, those three guys to me are just on a completely other level in terms of the way they impacted the game and the way they could physically overwhelm their opponents. And, you know, as someone who's seen LeBron play a bunch of playoff games now and, you know, seen him up close on a bunch of occasions it really is a treat to watch him play and you know it's something like you, you always talk about how you're going to tell you know your your grandkids about stuff that you saw or things you experienced and you know getting the chance to watch LeBron James basically throughout his entire career because he's only about six weeks older than me or younger than me I should say so the chance to really experience that from start to finish is something that that I'm, I'm never going to forget because it, it's really been it's really been a spectacle to watch. Well, and that, that's funny. I didn't realize we're almost exactly the same age, is that because I'm four months younger than LeBron, is the idea of, for that he got famous really young. And so he got famous at a time I went to a high school that was that was pretty good. You know, like we made we made I, do, I didn't play, but we made state my sophomore year. So I like I got to see really good players at, at my age. And when I watched LeBron on TV at 16, 17, I went, I've never seen anybody my age do this. And what's been so remarkable and I would say so fulfilling about him is that that's continued the entire way. 
You know, he's not one of those guys you're sitting there going, if and all that. And yeah, of course, it would have been nice if he developed his postgame two, three years earlier. Would have been nice if he worked, you know, if he had a little bit better jump shot. But that's on the fringes. Like, this is a guy who reached, if not the, the absolute maximum of his potential, very, very close to it. And that, I mean, you can talk about the other stuff, like the decision, all that. But for, as a basketball fan, that part of it is just incredible to me. LeBron lived up to the hype. How many people truly live up to the hype? Very, very few. You know, you have guys that, you know, there's, there's been plenty of guys that have had, you know, careers somewhere in the vicinity of him. But it, it's, it's almost impossible to find another example of someone who was able to came into something with as much hype as you could humanly have for someone. And not only accept the burden of that, but either match or exceed it at every turn. Like you said, going all the way back to when his games were all on TV in high school. And he came into the NBA and was immediately awesome. And, you know, immediately turned that team around. And within a couple of years, he had one of the best teams in the league. And, you know, was at 21 years old, one of the, you know, four or five best players in the league and was scoring, you know, 25 points in a row in a conference finals game and, you know, just just doing things that took other guys maybe their whole career to do once. And the, the fact that he the fact that he has has come into the league and matched everything that was expected of him and and I I would say probably exceeded it on a lot of levels is 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 probably the most remarkable thing that he's done. And given the amount of things he's done, I think that's saying something. One of the craziest things I've ever seen in the context of my entire life watching basketball was my freshman year of college was his first year in the NBA, and I was living in L.A., and the, I couldn't get a ticket to the Lakers game because it was too expensive, but I could get a ticket to the Clippers, and I was sitting... I had a pretty good seat, but up top. And there was a play in the middle... I think it was the middle of the third quarter where... He was going to get a fast break, but somebody fouled. I think it was somebody fouled him, or it was, you know, like kind of maybe a Euro foul equivalent. And the Clippers fans booed. They booed their own team <laughs> for stopping a fast break, which was the tactically right decision, because they were sitting there saying, we want to see what this guy can do. And it wasn't that booing like, oh, we're bad. I think the Clippers were actually ahead in that game. But it was one of those things that you just don't see. And, like, LeBron it's been amazing kind of to be able also, as you said, to like be able to cover it is that it's, it's one of those experiences that each time, like we both got to spend a lot of time in the, at the finals. It's like each time is kind of its own revelation and own thing. And it's not to say he's a perfect player in some ways for me, like with anybody, like same thing with Kobe and a few others. It's like, I find the imperfections, the small, as small as they may be even more kind of interesting because that makes you kind of makes you understand that, you know, that not everything's perfect, but they're pretty dang close. Yeah, no, totally. Like last night, for example, right on that on that Carl Malone dunk that he did. I don't remember exactly how the play started, but the Mavs tried to begin a play, and LeBron jumped in front of the path like a defensive back, stole the ball, swung it to somebody, took off down court, got it back all by himself, and did this ridiculous, you know, just soaring tomahawk dunk. And I mean, the whole play lasted three and a half seconds, four seconds. And, like, my mouth was just hanging open. I mean, it all happened right in front of me. The seats in Dallas are fantastic. 
So I was like five feet from Rick Carlisle for the whole game. And you, you see him do things like that on the court, like you said, and he just kind of, you just can't help but just shake your head about it because, like I said, it, it's different. Like the reason that Steph Curry has become such a, a, a major star is because when you watch him play, it's easy for a regular guy or girl watching the game to see what Steph is doing and think, yeah, I could do that because it's all dribbling skills and it's bombing up three pointers. And it, it's stuff that, that you can at least pretend to do on the playground. You can't, no one can do what LeBron does. And that, that's what makes him for me so special is that all you can do is dream about doing the stuff that he does because it, it, it's stuff that, like I said, if you're creating a player in a video game, you can, you can create him to do the stuff that LeBron's doing, but there's no regular guy that's out playing in a pickup game that could come anywhere close to making the play that LeBron made last night just because they, you know, the, the laws of physics just don't allow it. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and it's Curry is, is accessible, and he's not only accessible in terms of his skill set and how he's developed – but he's accessible just kind of his personality. He's an easygoing guy. I've known him for years. He's he's very he's honest. He's straightforward. He also has insanely good PR instincts. That's just the way he is. I mean, I because back back then when I met when I started covering him, he didn't really have people in that sense as far as I know. And LeBron, you know, he's kind of his own entity. You know, he he thinks in a different way and then he tries to do, you know, does things like train wreck and and everything else and it's remarkable to kind of to see what he can do the only real parallel for me and it was before my time before both of our times is kareem and the difference with them is that kareem did it in an age where the game was kind of a different part of everybody's lives and it was not global like it is now and all that and so and kareem did it he did it while playing with guys who were a lot of times like with magic at the end of his career who were kind of telegenic and did a lot of that stuff, he wasn't the alpha and the omega in the same way that LeBron is with the ball in his hands every possession. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. But, but LeBron is, you know, LeBron is a lot like Kareem, too, in that LeBron is, is someone that, that isn't afraid to, to speak his mind about things. There were, you know, there were some protesters recently that weren't happy that he didn't want to comment on or didn't have a comment on what was happening in Cleveland with Tamir Rice, but... You know, you've seen LeBron wear I can't breathe shirts at games, and you've seen LeBron be outspoken about various issues and wear the hoodies with Dwayne Wade and the Heat for during the Trayvon Martin trial, and and you've seen him put himself out there in a way that you know a lot of other guys in his position, whether it's Tom Brady or Michael Jordan or Derek Jeter, just to go guys in different sports, have never never been willing to do. It is kind of fascinating that that those two guys, you know, have always, you know, been been willing to, to speak their mind about stuff, too. And it, he's a really fascinating person. And I'm sure every generation, I'm sure people who grew up, you know, in kind of the age range that Michael Jordan was in or Magic and Larry, you know, would, would probably say similar things about them. But, you know, as, as a, you know, as a basketball junkie like you are, to get a chance to, to see this guy up close, you know, for so much of his career has really been, it's really been a treat. And, and it, it, it is, you know, like you said, he isn't perfect. There is stuff in his game that he could improve or, you know, could have, you know, maybe done a little better, but 
you know, the, the, the finished product certainly is pretty damn good, and it's, it's pretty fun to watch. So now that you've seen a little bit more of them, of course, we could have this conversation after Monday and be even be even better. Is right now, where do you see the Cavs in the scope of, let's say, the five best teams in the league? You know what? Tomorrow is going to tell me a lot. I think right now I have the, the Spurs and Warriors kind of tied. The Warriors probably slightly ahead. And then I think I have the Cavs and Thunder kind of tied with the Cavs probably slightly ahead. And then I have the, the Clippers a pretty significant step behind those four teams. The funny thing about those top four teams in the league is I think to this point in the season, they've only met twice. The Cavs played the Warriors on Christmas Day, a game I was at and you were at. Or you were you were not at, actually. I was not there. Um, right, you were not. But that game and the Spurs and Thunder played on opening night in Oklahoma City. I think that's the only two times those teams have played so far which is kind of remarkable given three of them are in the Western Conference. So, you know, there's a lot of games left to be played. And over the next five days, the Cavs are going to play the Spurs tomorrow. We're recording this on Wednesday. I don't know when it's going to go up, but uh, the Cavs play the Spurs on Thursday. And then they play – then they host the, the Warriors on Monday. And I think I'll have a much better feel for where I see them um, after those two games. But – Unlike those other three teams who all have to worry about getting by each other, barring just complete, complete catastrophic injury issues for Cleveland, I don't think they're going to, I think they might sweep the East. Maybe they lose a game or two in the playoffs and they should waltz into the finals. So really they have six months to try to make sure they have everything squared away so that when they get into that final series against one of those three teams from the West, they'll have everything going to a point where they can try to finally get Cleveland a championship. So it, it, is, it is kind of a unique situation in that while those other teams are all kind of jockeying for position and, you know, Golden State's or San Antonio is close enough to Golden State that they can at least still hope to maybe get the one seed. You know, Cleveland is really just – probably waking up every day just trying to figure out how they would beat those three teams if they made face them in the finals and the rest of it almost doesn't matter yeah i think what what i like about you grouping okc and cleveland together which i would do as well is that what makes those teams different than a lot of other really good teams is that their ceiling is high enough to beat the other two i'm not saying they're better teams i don't think they are but when they're on they can beat anybody, and that's what makes them so interesting. Like, when I watch Cleveland, I talked about this a little bit on Twitter last night. It's like, offensively, I think they have the potential to be so good that even great defenses can't stop them because there are certain things that you just can't structurally beat. It's the same, the parallel with OKC is Kevin Durant's the best isolation scorer in the league. What are you going to do if he just goes off? There's not, there's not a, like a, 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 even Kawhi, as great as Kawhi is, there are certain times when Kevin Durant's just going to do his thing. That doesn't mean they're going to win those series every time. Far from it. But having that power is really interesting. It's kind of like a boxer who maybe doesn't have the they don't maybe they don't have the best skill set, but they just have a really really good left hand or right hand, and you have to respect that because at a certain level that is what it's about. Totally. And I, I saw your tweet last night about the the big three in Cleveland and. I tend to agree. There are some there are some fundamental issues with the Cavs 
um, in terms of how their their lineups are laid out. But you know, last night that game was only close because Kevin Love missed a ton of wide open shots that, under most circumstances, he would not miss. And if you know, you mentioned Oklahoma City. Yeah, Oklahoma City has its issues, but to your point, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook can combine to score 80 points a game in a playoff series. And LeBron and Kyrie and Kevin Love could combine to score 80 to 90 points in a playoff series, maybe 100 points if they're all really cooking. And if you can get that kind of production from two or three guys, like you said, it's kind of like a boxer with a giant left hook. It can mask a, it can mask a lot of problems. Even against a team like San Antonio or Golden State, if you get hot, you can overwhelm anybody. And that's why I think those two teams, even though the Clippers have that to an extent, I think the fact that Chris Paul is probably taking a small step back and some of the other issues that the Clippers have, I don't think they quite have the same ceiling that the Thunder and the Cavs do in terms of having that knockout punch ability that – you know, whether you think they're as good as the Warriors or Spurs or not, at least gives them, like you said, a puncher's chance to win any series. And what makes it different for both of those teams as opposed to, let's say, like the Dirk Mavericks, which of course were wonderful teams that won a championship, is that it's a lot harder when it's multiple guys, especially when it's three like Cleveland, because, yeah, they're probably not all going to be on at the same time, but you can't really put out those three fires at once. You know, you can, the hope is maybe one person will be able to handle their matchup one-on-one. I mean, the Warriors would hope that with Iguodala, but why the Warriors were fortunate as much as they weren't a lucky champion, but why they were fortunate is that they didn't have to deal with that with Cleveland. You know, this, that was a team that never really reached that, really reached that form. And that's what makes the Warriors and the Spurs kind of different is that they don't, they don't rely on talents in the same way. And while I think that Cleveland in a way they kind of underutilize what they have at full strength, they still have those guys and they have the the intelligence and the potential, because I think all three of those guys are really smart basketball players, to transcend any of those limitations, particularly in the playoff series. No, I agree. And and, and the, the thing about the Cavs, too, and it, it goes back to our discussion about LeBron, is unlike a team like, say, the Warriors, right, where, you know, as great as Steph is, his primary weapon is his three-point shot, and the same goes for Clay Thompson. So you can have nights where those guys just can't hit a shot, as great as they are. The thing about the Cavs is it's almost impossible to keep LeBron from getting 25 points in a game because he's so much bigger and stronger than virtually everyone in the league, especially when he's handling the ball all the time, that if he's just bullying his way to the rim – kind of like a bigger version of James Harden, he's just going to get a bunch of shots at the rim. He's going to get a bunch of foul calls, and he's going to put up numbers. So really at that point, the thing with Cleveland is, not only is it you have to worry about trying to put out you know, those three fires at once, like you mentioned, but one of them is almost impossible to really put out. So you almost have to just let LeBron do his thing and try to limit Kyrie and Kevin Love, which – you know, like you said, those two guys are smart and excellent offensive players. And, you know, it just it just makes the task of guarding them really difficult. And that's why, you know, it will be really fun if they can, if they can be healthy going into the finals this year. Whatever team they get, it should just be an epic series because 
you know, there's, they just have so many ways to attack and both teams in the West are so good. I mean, it, it would be, you know, regardless of who they play, it would just be, it would just be an incredible series to watch. And one of the aspects that's so crazy about Cleveland season is I don't think they care at all about getting the one seed. I you know they're especially now that they're out of it really in terms of the the getting the getting a home court over the Spurs or the Warriors I mean just functionally it's unlikely at this point they I I think they're just like you know let's get to it let's get to the right place but they're still so much better than all these teams that even though if they want to strategically rest guys and everything else they're fine like it, it, they're at this level like I, I played the game before the season with a few people like how many non-LeBron starters would you have to pull off this team for them not to be the favorites in the East? And they're at the point where it's just like, it doesn't, it, it, and even though the East on the aggregate is deeper, they don't have that clear-cut contender. That isn't to say that they can just lollygag and just win it, but they're going to be the heavy favorites, and that means that they can focus in a very different way. Whoever makes it out of the West is going to face at least two hard series, possibly three. Yeah, it's just going to be a war, you know. I mean, even, you know, even if the Clippers, you know, people are kind of dismissing the Clippers, and I, I can understand why, but it's still not going to be easy to beat the Clippers in this playoff series. So, you know, even if the Warriors don't have to play the, the Spurs, say, say, say it holds as it is now, and it's, it's Warriors, Spurs, Thunder, Clippers. All four, you know, you still are going to have to beat two damn good teams to get to the NBA Finals. And if you're Where the Warriors, I, yeah, and if you're the Warriors, you might have to, in the first round, while Utah is not as good as these other teams, there's a big elevation issue. They're also, at full strength, a very good team. Like, the the, the teams in the bottom of the West aren't great, but they're all going to be a pain in, your, pain in the backside just because they're, they're good teams. They're well-coached for the most part. Yeah, the difference is, in the East, basically all those teams are like our pains, but that's all they are. So... You know, there'll be nuisances that Cleveland might have to, you know, play a fifth game, maybe a sixth game in a series, but they're not really going to be challenged. And whereas for those teams in the West, that's only their first round series. And then after that, you're, you know, you're in a, a prize fight in both of those final two rounds. And, you know, if you have to play six games against the Clippers and seven games against the Spurs or whatever, you know, seven against the Thunder and six against the Warriors, however you want to shake it out, that's going to wear on you. And when you're talking about a team in Cleveland that really isn't much worse or if maybe not worse at all than any of those teams at the top of the West, that could be the thing that swings the championship. It could just come down to the Cavs wind up being fresher than those other teams. And that that's why, you know, it's just these playoffs this year, I think are just going to be really great um, because unlike in years past, and I'm, I'm knocking on wood when I say this, they're, they're just so far haven't been the significant injury issues that have that have befallen teams the past few years. And I'm just praying we could stay that way because if we could go into these playoffs with every team operating it, if not maximum efficiency, close to it, I think it's got the potential to be a really historic couple months. And, it, you know, as a, a basketball fan, it would just be so much fun to watch. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And one aspect of it, if the teams stay close to healthy, that I think people might be discounting a little bit is the randomness if you get into an area where variance really matters. Like, let's say let's say you're facing the Clippers. I think the Warriors are clearly a better team than the Clippers. But if you're pushing a series to, let's say, six games, 
you're a couple of random misses or a, like a, a, a lightly sprained ankle or something like that away from seven or even losing the series. You know, it's very different to lose, like for the Warriors to lose to the Clippers than for the Cavs to lose to the Celtics. It's a very different chain of events that has to happen. And so that doesn't necessarily mean whoever makes it out of the West is going to be lucky or something like that. It's just that when the teams are that are, are closer to even, things like that can happen. And that random chance is exciting. It's fun. But I think that's also why I wrote a piece at the beginning of the year that the Cavs were the most likely champions. And while I don't stand by that now because the Spurs and the Warriors are looking so much better, I think that logic, the logic still holds. It's just that the team isn't quite at the level of the others. I actually still think that's true because from a mathematics standpoint, Cleveland's got by far the highest probability to make it to the NBA Finals. Yes, the Warriors are unbelievable, and they could easily win 70-plus games. Maybe they'll win 73. But there's a potentially historically great team that they might have to face in the Western Conference Finals. And if the Spurs lose to the Thunder, they could face a team with two Hall of Famers on it that are in their prime and playing out of their minds in the Western Conference Finals. And so it's not like, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to construct a scenario where the Warriors lose a playoff series in the West. Does that mean they will? Of course not. And they'll be favored to win all the series they're in. But Cleveland is such an overwhelming favorite to make it to the finals that if you're putting your life on one team to win the finals right now, I mean, I think just from an odd standpoint, it is hard to argue that Cleveland isn't the favorite because, it, you know, like you said, the, the series of events that it would take for them to lose to any of the teams in the East in the playoff series are just so far beyond what's realistic to happen that it would it would take an unbelievable chain of events for them not to make it back to the finals again. I, I agree with that completely, but we'll move from the teams at the very top to a team at the bottom that is close to your <laughs> consciousness. The the Nets have kind of I, I would say finally kind of pulled the trigger on the big series of moves. And while your your piece on it, which just came out right before we record this, is is excellent, and I think if people are unfamiliar with or want to like want to connect with the chronology of all of this, is mandatory reading. What I want to focus on with it, and I think you're a great person to talk to you about this, is two main kind of concepts. One is the lessons that we learned from it, like as you know, as fans of the NBA and as people who try to focus on good management. And secondly, where the Nets go from here. Um, okay, so let's let's take the first point, right? When Mikhail Prokhorov bought the Nets, he and the rest of his ownership team came in and they they came from a background in Europe where Prokhorov owned Cheska Moscow, one of the best teams in the world outside of the NBA. Won a, won a couple of EuroLeague titles, had a lot of success. And in Europe, you can buy whoever you need to buy. You can fire coaches and executives however you need to. You can just cut a check and get rid of people. There's no salary cap. There, there's, it, It's really just a matter of finding the pieces you want to fit, find that fit what you're trying to do and then getting them. Obviously, the NBA doesn't work that way. And I think when you look at the Nets, everything would have been different with the Nets if Dwight Howard had not opted into his contract on that fateful flight home from San Antonio to Orlando in March of 2012. If Dwight hadn't opted in, the Magic were going to trade into the Nets. The Nets would have had Darren Williams and Dwight Howard. 
They would have had one of the three best teams in the East. They would have had cap room going forward. They would have had roster flexibility. And they would have had a chance to be a really dominant team in the East. And a team that could have given Miami, even with LeBron and Wade and Bosch, a lot of trouble. But what got the Nets in trouble was when that didn't work out, instead of just being patient and saying, all right, this didn't work, but we still have Darren Williams, we have all the draft picks, we can you know, just keep this going forward, and we can build from here. They panicked and made a series of moves, most notably trading three first-round picks and the right to swap a fourth to the Celtics for Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and Jason Terry, that set themselves up for a position where they either had to win a championship, which people thought they could, so it's not like they traded all those picks for, you know, Andrea Bargnani or whatever, some other terrible player, but they set themselves up in a position where either they had to win a championship or they were going to be a colossal disaster. And obviously they didn't win a championship, and now they're a colossal disaster. And I think you know, it's, it's just the latest example of how in the NBA, if you're not thinking ahead and you're not being pragmatic in your decision-making, you're going to have a very hard time of having long-term sustained success. You look at a team like the Spurs, where I'm headed right now, and the Spurs were planning on chasing LaMarcus Aldridge for a couple of years or some free agent like LaMarcus Aldridge. They could see on the horizon that they were going to have this opportunity this past summer to go after a big guy, a big-name player. And so they put themselves in a position where when free agency hit, they were going to have a chance to chase guys like Marcus Saul and Marcus Aldridge and various other guys. And if they could get one of them, great. And if they couldn't, I'm sure they had a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. The Nets, they saw some bright and shiny objects and decided, let's go get those. Let's try to win today. And didn't think about what it would be like to try to win tomorrow or next week. That, as much as anything, is the reason why they're in the position they're in now. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. And the thing that I'll add is that under the current collective bargaining agreement, there is a huge structural advantage for teams in major markets. And there are a little, a few arguments about whether Brooklyn truly counts in the same class as the Knicks and the, the Lakers just because Brooklyn of their... truly, Brooklyn, Brooklyn truly counts in that class. Yeah, just, so I, I agree with that. you. And so, so to me, there are a couple of different advantages that you have. One of them is that you are a really desirable place for minimum salary guys because you're in a place that people want to live and you're in contention. You're in the room for, for almost every max guy, whether you're going to get them or not. And so... To me, there is a different set of rules that apply to those teams. And what is the most incredible part of the current CBA, meaning the one that, that was in 2011, is that exactly zero of the major market teams really wielded that to their advantage. You know, they all kind of they ended up being run more like mid-market teams. And the team that ran themselves like a major market was Miami. And they yielded, they did, they had already built their team when the new CBA happened. But when you're looking at what they're doing for 2016, that's what they're, that's what they're building is they're building with this idea of, Hey, we're a place that people will always consider. Let's, let's manage our cap reasonably. Let's do all this kind of thing. 
and they're in a better spot, arguably, than any of the other big teams except for the Clippers because the Clippers got lucky with the Chris Paul trade. Yeah, no, I agree. And the most amazing thing about what the Nets have done is when Mikhail Prokhorov bought the Nets, what was the thing that everybody was most afraid of around the league? It was that here's this billionaire Russian oligarch with this crazy lifestyle who is going to be able to get these players to come play for his team. Like his charisma and his ability to sell guys on, you know, global marketing plans and that kind of stuff was a big reason why teams were kind of concerned that he was going to come in and have a lot of success. And what's happened? The Nets haven't been a player for any free agent because they've used all of their cap space in trades. And they've done a really nice job of getting guys to sign for them for the minimum. Getting got, Like when they've been in competition for free agents, they've a lot of times gotten them up until now and their team wasn't good. Um, but in the past, they were able to go out and get a lot of guys that people were surprised they could go get. Guys like Alan Anderson, guys like Sean Livingston, guys like Andre Kirilenko. You know, you could kind of go down through the, the first few years in Brooklyn, and they got a lot of minimum free agents to come play there because guys wanted to be in New York and guys wanted to play for their team. But they haven't given themselves the opportunity to go after one of those major major names in free agency. And with a brand-new arena and a brand-new practice facility to be open in Brooklyn soon and – the lure of playing in New York and the ability to have sponsorship deals, the ability to be marketed in a pretty massive market in Russia and China and other places like that. The Nets haven't given themselves the ability to do that. And to your point, that was their biggest advantage. And the fact that they were so, they were so hell bent on being competitive for a championship right away, that the moves they made took themselves out of being able to utilize the most, is part of their arsenal and that that as much of anything is is the most galling thing about the way they've gone about their business in recent nba history the only team that has really done it impatiently and succeeded wasn't a major market team that was boston and they got lucky i mean i i think i personally i hold animosity because i firmly believe that mikhail did not take the best offer on the table for kevin garnett that's something that i have to deal with but you, you, that is what it is, and and then Boston, you know, with Ray Allen and everything else, and everybody else slow builds it, you know, and I think in a lot of ways you could see the model for what Brooklyn should have done is what the what the Rockets ended up doing, and how the Rockets ended up getting the guy that Brooklyn won in the first place in Dwight Howard was they were able to they weren't able to get every argument perfect because their Houston isn't New York, it isn't L.A., but they're like, okay, you can come here. There's a state with no no state income tax. Our team will be good. You will be featured, and thing, things will work out. And Brooklyn just never gave themselves the chance to make the more cohesive sales pitch, which really, like, when you're in that kind of an advantage, that's all you really have to do. And the Lakers are going to have to try to do that eventually. They just haven't given themselves a chance either because they paid Kobe, Mo- Kobe Bryant $25 million. Right, and, and, and that's why it all goes back to Dwight, because... Really, those first two years, that's what the Nets did, right? They chased Carmelo Anthony. They didn't get him. They got Darren Williams in what was a great trade then. It still looks like a good trade now, given what Darren Williams was at the time. I mean, that, that was a trade any team in the league would have made at the time. So they had, a, they had one star, and they were on the verge of getting the second one. Like, I, like you said, they, they had themselves in the position to get him either by a trade or if Orlando just wouldn't trade him. As long as he opted out, he was signed with the Nets. Like, it was dumb. Things went haywire for them when Dwight went off the table. 
because instead of being pragmatic and just saying, all right, we'll get the next guy, let's just keep building and keep accumulating assets and wait until we can strike. They instead ran headlong into, we've got to go get guys to play with Darren right now. We got to win in New York right now. We got to go trade for Joe Johnson, even though they didn't, you know, we got to trade for Joe Wallace. We got to sign all these guys. They took themselves out of the running of ever having any money to go get a guy like Dwight. I mean, think about how things played out, right? If the Nets had just been patient and said, all right, you know, we're going to keep Darren. We're going to pay him the most money. Brooks going to be healthy. We'll have him and Brooke. We have our draft picks. Let's just go start building. The Nets could have signed Dwight as a free agent in a year. Because he left a year later after playing for the Lakers to go to Houston. And he still would have gone to the Nets. So they could have signed Dwight a year later and then turned Brooke Lopez into something else and then still have the team they wanted in the first place. But because they were so in, they were so impatient, they didn't give themselves that opportunity. Then they just kept throwing good money after bad and making more and more rash trades to try to win immediately. And, you know, now they're in the situation where they've got a gigantic Grand Canyon-sized hole to dig themselves out of. And, you know, you wrote a very good piece for the Sporting News about some of the positives that they have. And there are, I think, a lot of positives, even though they are a franchise that people like to make fun of. But just because there's some positives doesn't underscore the level of digging and the, the amount of work they're going to have to do in order to get themselves out of the mess they've made for themselves. Right, and why I wrote the piece was kind of to to get at the idea that there is a there is a path forward, but it with what I tried to convey with it is that it's a very narrow, very deliberate, very slow path forward. And you know, you have to basically with their goal for the next three years should be to build the asset base. And so the idea then is basic right now with the NBA, and I think this is going to be true with the ne- with the next CBA, is you can, especially in a major market, you can get your roster, let's say about half full, maybe even a little bit more than that, of talented guys, not not the guys who are going to solve all your problems, but of good play, you know, players that can be a part of successful teams, maybe rotation players, one or two starters, and then still have the flexibility to get the big players. And that is what, so they can't probably get the stars between now and then. And if they do, then you start changing the timeline a little bit. You can always do that. That's why you maintain flexibility. But what you do is you just build that base. And ideally you do it with, I mean, if you can do it with, with good character guys and you can do it with, you know, people who are who are going to be, try to be around for the long term, ideally with team control so that they're still cheap, you know, like that's why it'd be nice to have like, let's say, a late first round pick this year just because that person will be cheap through the next good Brooklyn team and then you can overpay them. And so you just build that base as best you can. And then once you kind of get out under this, then you assess it. And what's what's amazing about that kind of a system, again, Houston is probably the model for this, though parts of it are Philly is the best model for it, is you can always break away from that mod, from that pattern when the guy comes. That's the difference between that and some of the other ones that are out there is like, you know, cresting at the right time. And obviously if your team is as good as the Spurs and that's your option, that's your option. But if you're towards the bottom, you want to maintain that flexibility because you never know when the person's going to come. You never know. The example that I use for this is actually one that Philly did, which is you never know when Sacramento is going to call you and say, 
hey, here's a terrible trade, like, but you, you're like the only team with space, we'll offer it to you. And Brooklyn, if they can't get Durant or Horford, they're a great spot to be that team. Totally, totally. And they're a team that, like you said, they need to develop assets, right? They should be offering Harrison Barnes a max contract the first day of free agency. They should be going around like when, like when Danny Ferry ran the Hawks, you know, getting, finding a guy like Paul Millsap on an undervalued contract, finding a guy like Kent Bazemore on an undervalued contract, finding a guy like Damari Carroll on an undervalued contract, going out and, you know, having really good, really good scouting and finding guys that aren't being utilized in the right way and taking, you know, taking some chances on guys and betting on some young guys that maybe in a different situation can take a big step forward. Maybe maybe they can get, like, I'm not a fan of this guy as a player. Maybe they could get DeMar DeRozan this summer, right? And so they don't have their pick, so they are kind of stuck in the middle. So maybe you get one guy like that. You have Thaddeus Young. You have Brooke Lopez. You have Ronnie Hollis Jefferson, who looks like a very nice young player. Then you go out and maybe you spend money on, maybe you get a Jeremy Lin to play point or you go find, you know, some other young, you know, you find some younger guys that aren't being utilized in, a, in an ideal optimal way. And you, you allow them to showcase themselves and maybe you can turn around and put that. Maybe you sign Brandon Jennings. Maybe you say, look, Brandon Jennings was playing really, really well when he hurt his Achilles. He looks healthy now. Maybe if we go get Brandon Jennings, give him a couple-year deal, maybe he plays great and we can flip him for something. And you, you mentioned Houston. I think, you know, kind of the way that Darrow was churning the roster before they got James Harden is a, lot of, is a lot like what the Nets should be trying to do. Is to your point, you know, finding as many guys that are undervalued as they can and then trying to find a way to maximize what they can do in order to either – improve your talent base to the point where you, like you said, can convince a star player to come, or you can sell them off for more assets to keep trying to build going forward because you have to start restocking all of the many pieces that you've sent out over the last few years. And what makes the Nets situation, I didn't talk about this in the piece, I, I didn't really have a good way to write about it, what makes them so fun intellectually is that the normal incentives for winning and losing are kind of out the window for them. Obviously, you want to be as relevant as you can, both for free agent perception and for um, just for fan involvement. You know, if you want to say the atmosphere or the revenue, whatever you want to attribute it to, you can think altruistically, you can think selfishly, it really doesn't matter. But having that kind of a background is actually helpful from a, from a GM perspective if you have somebody with the right perspective and is getting the right support from ownership. Because then you can, you know, you can try some things, you can, you can take some flyers on some players, and if it doesn't work out, you don't face the same ill effects that a team that's gunning for a title or is trying to be horrible is doing. You know, if, like, if, you're, if you're the Sixers and part of your asset management, though I don't think it's the most important part of it necessarily, is maintaining your future draft picks, you have to think about it differently than the Nets. The Nets have a lot more creative freedom than other teams do. Yeah, and look, like I said before, like the Nets are a team everyone likes to poke fun at, right, at this point, given the way things have gone. So you don't really have anything to lose either on that front. You're not going to – I mean, pretty much whatever they do is probably going to get laughed at 
you know, maybe that will change with, you know, if they go out and get, say, Tom Thibodeau to be their coach, maybe maybe that will start to change. But, you know, people have spent a long time poking fun of that team. If they see a guy that they think is undervalued and they want to overpay him a little bit to make sure they get him, yeah, people might say it's not a great contract, but if the guy winds up outperforming it, it doesn't matter. And so, to your point, if they find guys that they believe in, they should go out and pay them and, and get them to come there and and try to try to find those guys to start to, to restock things and finally, you know, try to establish that base of a solid, sustainable, long-term plan going forward, which is, which has just been as someone who, you know, was around this team on a daily basis. It just is something that wasn't even remotely considered for a while. And it's unfortunate that it happened kind of, and this isn't, you know, they just couldn't have created the cap space before now. It happened a little, a year late because there were going to, there were more of those guys last summer than there are going to be this summer because there's just so much more cap space out there and players are going to get a lot, they're going to have much better offers on the table. But at the same time, there will always be opportunities for bargains. I mean, that's just the way the league is. Certain players will be undervalued and some people, when I when I kind of wrote the piece, I think some people wanted me to be more specific, maybe about players or whatever. And the point of that life and being in there is that you never know where it's going to come. The, you never know who the undervalued asset is going to be. You never know who's going to make the crazy trade offer. You, I mean, it's probably going to be the Kings because it's always the Kings, but you never know beyond that. <laughs> right. and, and so I think right. that what what you're doing is you're opening yourself up to be used as the term I used in the Kings Sixers article I wrote was mistake feel, which is a term I want to use more often now. Like you want to be, <laughs> you want to give other teams the mistake feel. You want to be the team. You want to be the team that they call at two in the morning when they're, when they're desperate. You want to be that team and Brooklyn can be that team. Yeah. And that would be a very smart way for them to try to, to try to establish some assets. Kind of like what Philly has done, you know, and, I mean, you mentioned them with the Kings before, but you know, if you, if you, and they, they could, certainly do that at the year trade deadline too maybe if they could they could find a way to to be a third team in some deals and and uh and, and and extract an asset or two you know they need to they need to do whatever they can to try to to try to to build their their talent base up and and their asset base in whatever way possible and you know like you said they they have a lot of creative license right now given the situation they're in and they have to use all of it to try to, to try to get themselves back on track yeah, they really do have to use all of it because they have they have a lot of constraints that people just are beyond what most teams have ever had to deal with with the fact that they don't have they don't have their control over a first round pick for 3 years. I believe that the only possibility they have control over a second is if Boston exercises the swap next year. There's a little bit more to that. But I I think that what's exciting kind of moving forward for them. Actually, no, instead of looking forward, I'm going to look back. The trade that to me that articulates the issue that they had and the most correctable part of, of what Brooklyn did is the Gerald Wallace trade. People talk about the KG one, and the reason for the Gerald Wallace trade is this. They gave up a what everybody knew was going to be a lottery pick. They didn't know what pick, of course, because it was during the season. For a guy who, while talented, was about to be an unrestricted free agent, who was interested in your team anyway, and who your team had the cap space to sign anyway. And Brooklyn was not competing for a playoff spot. They were really, really bad that year. So what it what it was was it was just petulance. You know, it was one of those situations where you're you're in you're so insecure that you're going to make this unnecessary move. And yeah, you can do insecure moves. Teams do it all the time. 
but you can't give up something that actually matters. You can give up something fake that doesn't matter, but you can't give up an actual asset for it. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Not pushing back on the, the giving up a top three protected pick part. Obviously, that was a that was a ridiculous decision to make, as was when when Billy King said there were only three players in the draft and Ed White, which is also a silly thing to say. I wouldn't call it an act of petulance. What happened was, you know, like I said, the Nets were convinced they were getting Dwight Howard, whether it was at on, on March 15th or on July 1st. And Dwight, in typical Dwight fashion, opts into his contract for the following season at 2 in the morning the night before, like, the, the, the 2 in the morning the morning of the trade deadline. So the Nets woke up at 8 o'clock in the morning or whenever they got up, and they were like, oh, my, Dwight is off the table. And Orlando didn't want to deal with the Nets because they didn't want to send him to the Nets. They were mad that Dwight, they, they thought there was tampering. They, they, they did not want to make that trade unless they had to. And so that extra year basically ensured Dwight wasn't going there for a whole other season at the very minimum. Meanwhile, Darren Williams is playing on a team that is terrible that has a ton of injury. They're playing in Newark. He's not happy about that. He's about to be a free agent. He's about to go play for Team USA. He's still one of the 10 or 12 best players in the league. They desperately want to keep him and make him face their franchise going into the brand new arena in Brooklyn. And so they panic, and they make a trade for Gerald Wallace, a guy who was able to play right away for them, was a vet to come in and could contribute then. And they were, I think, three and a half games out of a playoff spot when they made the trade. So they were close enough that you could at least see that if Gerald came in and matched with Darren, maybe they could make a run and get, the play, get into the playoffs. Now, was that a smart trade? But I do think that you can at least know why they made it. And given what they had at stake with trying to keep Darren on the team, I think that the rationale for the trade was sound. I don't, or not, maybe not sound, but it was at least understandable. The part that isn't understandable is giving up a top three protected pick for Gerald Wallace and then justifying that by saying, well, we only think there's three good players in the draft. That, that is not something that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that is the part of that trade that, looking back on it, you have to kind of go, what were you guys thinking? that that was a good idea. Yeah, I, I think I think that's some good context to have in there. And um, again, I think I focus more on the price paid rather than the why than the why. Just personally, yeah. I think that's... And I'm not. And, I, and to be clear, I'm not trying to say that was a great trade. Either. Yeah, obviously it was not. But it isn't quite as simple as look how stupid the Nets were to trade that pick for Gerald Wallace. I mean, there was some there were some extenuating circumstances there. And look. That trade helped help keep Darren Williams. So, you know, given given what he was at the time, there at least was some um, some cost benefit to it. But you could have easily made that a lottery protected first round pick or a top ten protected first round pick or something where you could have made sure that you derived the prime asset out of it. And if the Nets had gotten Harrison Barnes or Drummond, Andre Drummond or somebody in that draft then, you know, they would have had another asset to put in a trade later. 
if nothing else, or they would have had a good young player to, to have as part of their core. So, yeah, I mean, that it, there's no question that they, they should have managed their assets better in that case for sure. Well, speaking of asset management, one of the things that we talked about kind of before the recording part of this is my kind of, I guess, I guess I'll count it as my thought on it, though I'm far from the only one to articulate it, that asset management has actually strangely been one of the flaws that the 76ers have done, which I would argue has in some ways been their greatest undoing, which is the idea that once you have a guy on your roster, you owe it to yourself to allocate some of your resources to making sure that you can A, evaluate who you have, and B, sell them in case you want to trade them. Yeah, totally. I think if you look at the process, right, the the air quotes process that that has become such a talking point around the league and and uh, has become such a, a, a conflict point for a lot of people in discussions about what what Philadelphia is doing and, and or has been doing up until recently and why they've been doing it. The thing that the people who have kind of blindly defended what Sam Hickey has done is like to your point, when you draft a player, you need to give that player the best possible chance to succeed. Not just because it is beneficial to the player, because that would help them become a better player, but it's also beneficial to the team because whether you're trying to develop that player into somebody that could be part of your core going forward, or whether you could develop that player into somebody that can be used in a trade later on, it doesn't do you any good if you're drafting players and having them as part of your, your roster and they are not capable of living up to their, their potential because the circumstances around them are too detrimental. You look at Jaleel Okafor, for example. The Sixers, you know, I wrote, I wrote a big piece about the Sixers just before the decision to bring in Jerry Colangelo. And from talking to people around the organization, in and around the team, you know, one, one question I wanted answered when I went to Philadelphia and I was there for Kobe Bryant's final game in, in Philly, so I got a chance to talk to people while I was there. And one question I wanted answered was, to speak of a guy we just talked about, why Philadelphia didn't keep Gerald Wallace? Gerald, Gerald had one year left on his contract. Um, he already was getting paid. And Gerald is a, a, a good guy, good vet, would have been a good veteran presence to have around that team. And I thought it was interesting that they let him go and opted to just pay him his money instead. This wasn't like having JaVale McGee and trading for him just to get rid of him because you don't want to have JaVale doing JaVale things and, you know, impacting the the development or the the growth of your young big men. Gerald was not going to play much and wasn't wasn't going to be a a disruptor. And he would have been a good guy to, to kind of show those guys the ropes for how to be pros. And the answer I got was that basically the Sixers decided that they liked the potential of Christian Wood to become a rotation player down the road better than what Gerald Wallace could do for them in the moment and in, in, in this year as a, as a veteran influence. I think that idea is the biggest reason why Sam Hinkie has – you know, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to say he's failed, but why his plan hasn't worked, um, and why it, it got 
so much public scrutiny was, and you, I think you actually said this perfectly before we got on, on the podcast. If, if the Sixers had looked at their roster, like we need to maximize spots one through 12 or one through 13 and the last two or three spots we should use on veteran guys to help grow our culture and our young players. If they'd gone out in the summer and let's say they kept Gerald Wallace and gone out and signed Elton Brand and Luke Rittenhauer and not had Christian Wood and T.J. McConnell on the team, I think there's a very good chance that stuff like what's happened with Jalen Okafor doesn't happen because there is a veteran player that can show Jaleel what it's like to be a pro, that can show Jaleel where and where to go and where not to go, who to talk to and who not to talk to, and just how to go about your job of being a professional basketball player. There are a lot of things that go into playing in the NBA that go far beyond whatever you do in the 48 minutes you're on the bench and on the court for a game. And there's a reason why so many teams have veteran players around to kind of show these guys the ropes. You look at what Flip Saunders did in Minnesota, bringing in Andre Miller, bringing in Tayshaun Prince, having Kevin Garnett there, having those guys there to teach guys like Zach Levine and Ricky Rubio, Andrew Wiggins, Carl Anthony Towns, how to do their job and how to go about the business of being an NBA player is something that is a really immeasurable thing, and it's something that if the Sixers had looked at that and said, we need to go into this summer and we need to find players that are going to help Jaleel Okafor be the best pro he can be, I don't think the number three pick in the draft would have had as many issues as he's had. And I think that Sam Hankey, ironically, would probably still be in charge of the team and the process would really not have been affected at all. And I think that's the biggest point here is that they could have, and you you bring up a great point with the vets, the way that I would have bridged that gap is had at least one of those guys be somebody who can play right now. And the guy that I've said before is Jeremy Lin. And the reason for that is he's a guy who you can throw more money at. I, I think the number I've thrown out there before is five and a half, six million. Then you give him a second year non-guaranteed. So then you are creating an asset to a point and you're paying him more money than he was getting for his two years in Charlotte combined. And then you can get one or two other vets is that what you're doing in the, in that case is you're getting a better set of players to evaluate the guys that you have and to sell them. You're creating an asset. And at the same time, you're resolving the issue of public perception. Because while you are still going to be terrible, absolutely unequivocally, if, if basically the only difference with this team and last year's team was Elton Brandon, let's say Jeremy Lin, they would still be terrible. Look at the Lakers last year. The, the Lakers team last year was, was better talent-wise, I would argue, than the current Sixers team, especially when you consider age. You, you solve all of those things at once by going 1 to 13 or 1 to 12 than by going 1 to 15. And that helps facilitate it. And what it, what it, the other thing that it does, which I think is really important, is it it tells everybody around the league that you're you're kind of committed to doing it the, the right way, quote-unquote. And while that shouldn't – some people would say, oh, that shouldn't matter. It does because you're in a personal business. There are very few people – you know, this is it's a world that is very narrow. It is a world that is very shallow in that way. And whether it's fair or whether it's not fair, it's kind of like politics in this way where you don't want anybody to dislike you for silly reasons, 
because you need to save those dislikes for when you for like the very few times that you absolutely want something unequivocally like fleecing a team in a trade or something like that. You know, you still want to have everybody pick up your phone calls, whether that's players, agents, or GMs, because those are the people that will make every other move possible. Yeah, exactly. And and it and it really is. It goes beyond just doing things the right way. It's you need to give your young players the best chance to be successful. And I would even argue, I mean, I think you made a very good point about Jeremy Lin, but I don't even think they needed to do that. I think if they had gone out and just had a couple more veterans on the team instead of instead of having a roster almost entirely comprised of guys in their early 20s, even if they didn't play much, I think that people would have looked at what they were doing differently. But the fact that the Sixers were so hell-bent on having every single roster spot be maximized for the most potential for upside kind of blinded themselves to the fact that in doing so, they didn't have anybody to show these guys the right way to do things. And that's really come back to bite them when you look at what's happened with Okafer and what even what's happened with Joel Embiid. I mean, there's been a lot of issues with Joel, you know, in terms of, you know, disciplinary issues with how he's gone through his rehab and things like that. And I would think even a guy like Cam, even if he's not playing, if you have some veteran people around to try to show him the right way to do stuff and to, and to kind of be there as a emotional support for him, I think that things might have been, not that he wouldn't be hurt again, but that, you know, maybe some of the other issues he's had wouldn't be there either. Yeah, it, being an NBA player and becoming an NBA player is a series of different transitions that, unfortunately, given the way that American sports works, all happen at the same time. You're really becoming an adult. You're becoming self-sufficient. You're getting paid, in these cases, almost exclusively a lot of money. At the same time, you're also adjusting to basketball being, while some college players think of it as their life, but really having it be your job. Your job is to be a professional athlete. And all of these other things, the the money, the personal personnel things, like I think actually Survivor's Remorse has done a pretty good job of kind of articulating some of what these issues are. And it's something that the best people who can teach you that are people who have gone through it and people who who know the language, who know what you're going through. And vets doing that when they're on the t- when they're in practice with you, when they're on the court is really the best way to do that because you're with them all the time. It is basically their responsibility to be around you because you're being paid by the same company. And so it's it's kind of like you can pay somebody to be their mentor and their best friend, and they can't really say no because they're always going to be there anyway. Right. And and, and it's and look, like the Sixers would have argued, look, we have the youngest coaching staff in the league. Our coaches are doing a lot of this stuff. But it's not the same as if it's a player. And you look at the Sixers hiring, signing Elton Brand, right? And Elton Brand went to Duke, was an all-star big man, has had a terrific career. And, I mean, you, you think Julio Okafor is going to respect more what Elton Brand is saying than what some assistant coach is saying? Of course he is. Elton Brand, Elton Brand is the kind of guy that he hopes to be down the road, an all-star, an all-star big man who's kind of done, who's done a lot of these things in the league. And th- there's a real value in – Having somebody there that you can you can lean on and, and get advice from. I'll, I'll I'll share I'll share a story from the Nets. When I was still covering the Nets, start of the season, there was a I think it was more a preseason game, and 
uh, we're in, we got into the gym after shoot-around was over, and I was, I was just watching the court. And Joe Johnson was standing outside the three-point line talking to Rondé Hollis Jefferson. And for about 15 minutes, Joe Johnson was just pointing to different spots on the court and kind of talking Rondé through a bunch of stuff. And you could see that Rondé just kept asking questions and was just really engaged in what Joe was talking about. I mean, I think most people listening to this podcast know that Joe Johnson has never exactly been the most gregarious guy in any room. He's a great guy, but he's, he's not exactly, you know, he's not LeBron James or, you know, some big personality like that. So, you know, the guys eventually come off the court after shoot around and I, I you know, I let Joe finish his interview with, with the group. And then I grabbed them and I said, Hey, you know, I saw you talking to Rondé for a while you know, what were you guys talking about? And Joe's face lit up like it rarely, I mean, I had a lot of good conversations with Joe, but he, I never saw him more excited than he was for this, this five or 10 minutes when he basically just talked nonstop about what Rondé was like and how invested he was and how much he enjoyed working with him because here's this young kid that is really excited to learn and, you know, is, is asking questions and, you know, is trying to figure out what is, what is go, what goes into being an NBA player and how to guard wings and how to, how to do, how to do the things necessary to become a really good NBA player. And Rondé was the same way about Joe and really, he really looks up to Joe as a guy that can really show him what it takes to play in the league. And, you know, you can have the best coaches in the league and you can have a great infrastructure and you can, you can tell all these guys exactly what they need to do to become really good players. But it means a lot more when a guy who's been a seven-time All-Star and a star in the league like Joe Johnson is talking to a 20-year-old kid and telling him, look, this is, what, this is how you stop me if I'm doing this or this is how you get by a guy if he's doing that. It's just a different level of impact that – is is something that can't be overstated and 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 like you said you know a while back it is kind of remarkable that the thing that undid the Sixers more than anything else was just not thinking that that was important because anybody who's been around the game can see that it is important to have that kind of person around to to show the young guy what it takes to to get the job done and that's a that's a great way to put it, and I, I think that story will help people understand it. And the other thing that I would say is the social aspect of it outside of practice and all that is that you have when you have a group of people like you hear stories about like the law of the warriors guys go to dinner, they're on a group text and things like that, and that there is a fundamental structure in almost any work environment. As much as you love your boss, and I've had good relationships with a large portion of mine, where that kind of connection really happens with your team members as opposed to your coaches. You know, they're a part of the personnel. You know, you think about it like you hear a lot of guys talk about, you know, it's the business with various parts of it, contract negotiations or whatever. And so you can, if you can get that in a player, you can, somebody you can go to movies with, it's somebody you can do all these other things with. And then when you're on the court and all of, uh, when you're on the court in practice and all that, you build this rapport and it's, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship if you can do it right. And, it's something that, that really benefits all sides, and yeah, it's not going to work every time. You know, sometimes you're going to have a veteran who's not going to be nice or who's not going to connect. Maybe they don't have things in common or whatever, and then you maybe you try somebody else. But you go after that because if you can do it right, 
the cost of what you're missing out on is so marginal. Yeah, I mean that really summed it up perfectly. I mean, you know, and that and that's a good that's a good way to bring it back to to everyday people, right? I mean, like you said, even if you have a good relationship with your boss, he's your boss or she's your boss, and you're just going to feel more comfortable hanging around with people on the same level as you. And even if even if you know you're talking about LeBron James, he's much more on the same level as you than David Black or David Griffin with the Cavs. And, or even Teron Liu. And you're just or right, or even Teron Liu, right. It's just it's just gonna be much different when it's a coach telling you something and they're in a position of authority where or instead of a teammate telling you something when they're in the position of being on, when they're still on the court with you and they're they're part of what you're doing. It's just a different it's just a very different thing. And I think that I think that analogy that you said really sums that up. And it's also a different kind of accountability. I mean, I remember that when uh, the one that sticks out to me is Andrew Bogut and David Lee. Like, Andrew Bogut was a guy who had reached the level of stature that when David Lee took a possession off defensively, he could call him out on it. And you saw Lee play better because he had somebody who was going to tell him no, somebody who he respected. Like, it's kind of what I always thought Monte Ellis needed was Monte needed to play. I always wanted him to play with LeBron because I thought, you know, playing with somebody who would tell him no and that he would actually listen to might have curbed some of his mistakes that I think have kind of sidetracked his career. And you see that in a lot of different levels. And it's part of the reason why I wish basketball rosters were a little bit bigger because then you wouldn't be sacrificing in the same way. But it's, I, I think that one of the things that I'm so excited about is, on the aggregate, I think teams are getting to a level where they understand that and where I think vets are more okay with that than before, where it's not like they're sitting there going, you know, there are guys around the league who are happy to hang on for that, who are willing to do what Elton Brand's doing, where they're not ready to leave just yet, as opposed to saying, well, oh, if you're going to bring me in, you need to pay me $5 million, even though, you know, maybe I'll play five minutes a game. I think we're getting to a point now where that equilibrium is easier to manage than it used to be. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think, you know, back in the day, it was harder because guys couldn't make that much money playing, and they might have to go get, you know, kind of, and might have to go start a career doing something else. But now, with the way the money is, you know, if you, if you pay a guy a veteran minimum contract after 15 years in the league, they're making a couple million dollars a year close to it. So, you know, at that point, you know, you, it's not you're not exactly making peanuts, and you know, it, it it does make it does make getting those guys to do that a lot simpler. And 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 you know, like we said a few times, it, it really it really can pay huge dividends for a team if they utilize that properly. And even more frustratingly, as somebody who who disagrees with it on a on a personal equity on a, on an equity level, the league subsidizes that. You know, the league basically says, okay, if you're going to pay an older vet, we're basically going to pay the difference in that contract. So not only are you, you're losing out on the roster spot, but that's all you're losing out on because the financial part of it is covered. Well, right, and that and that's why the league does it specifically. So it it doesn't their their teams have that incentive to do it as opposed to just. Well, we you know we might as well save a million bucks and you know sign some guy that's you know straight out of the D league as opposed to Elton Brand say or you know someone like that because because otherwise you know if it costs you a million and a half bucks instead of a million to sign a vet guy like that you know you might not be able to sign a couple of those guys and maybe you couldn't fit them under the cap so so yeah it is it does that that is set up that way and it, I think I think that's a great rule the league has in place to try to to help foster, you know, those kind of situations from happening. So I'm going to let you go, even though you have a little bit more of your drive left, but what I, what I wanted to leave on, is, so there are going to be two questions. The first is, 
what teams are you enjoying watching the most this year? All right. Well, I mean, the obvious answer is the Warriors. They're they're spectacular. Um, I've gotten a chance to see the Spurs some. I think they're they're pretty great. A team that I'm kind of stunned to admit that I'm not stunned to admit, but stunned that I am enjoying so much are the Knicks. As someone who's in New York, at least lives in New York, I haven't been there much uh, the last couple months. People don't quite realize what the Knicks mean to the city, even though they haven't had the same kind of success that teams like the Celtics and the Lakers have had. The Knicks are the most important team in New York, and they're the team that the most people root for, more than the Yankees, more than the Giants. You know, the Knicks are are the are the biggest team in the city, and when the Knicks are going and going well, the city's alive in a way it isn't otherwise. The Knicks this year have just been stunning to me. I didn't think they were going to be any good. I was very optimistic about Chris S. Porzingis, especially after seeing him in Summer League. I thought he was going to be a very good player down the road, but I thought it was going to take him some time. And I thought that trading Carmelo would have probably made sense at some point this season. But, you know, now, you know, Lance Thomas is like, has become a real NBA player. Derek Fisher's gotten better as a coach. Um, Chris S. Porzingis has been just an unbelievable re- revelation as a player. Looks like he's got a chance to be a star, if not even better than a star in the league, which, you know, is, is more than anyone in New York could have possibly hoped for. He's become, you know, one of the most popular players in the city already in any sport. Carmelo is playing as well as he's ever played. And, you know, they're sitting at 500 and, and fighting for a playoff spot in the East. And they're just doing so much better than I ever would have guessed. And it's fun to be in New York and have that team matter and have a, a finally have a young star in Chris Asporzingis that fans there can get excited about, and you can you can see playing for 15 years in New York City, and and really being being a guy that you can build around. So, I mean, I could probably go through some other teams too, but but the Knicks the Knicks have been a lot of fun, and, and that's been that's been a big surprise. Yeah, it really has been. And what I think is so refreshing about Porzingis, and it's one of those things that if I had really, if I'd ever gotten to know him personally before the draft, what I would have liked more and probably moved him up a little bit with my board is, you see it in his game, but he's a guy who wants to get better. He's a guy who loves basketball, and he he, he embraces the challenges that are being in New York. And as much as we like to think that maybe that stuff might not matter, it totally does. Unequivocally, totally does. And so he, I, I think that for a guy who's as young as he is, he's he's fun to watch. I think he'd be really fun to play with. And so you, you see a guy who's, you know, he's not, you know, he's not Carl Anthony Towns, who's, you know, you could see as maybe being the next, you know, mega, being the next Tim Duncan might even be the best way to put it. You know, a guy who can age really well and then, you know, who knows post-prime. Post-prime Tim Duncan's a cyborg, but even pre-prime Tim Duncan. And maybe Porzingis never becomes that guy, but he becomes something else that is very valuable, that is very important. And when you think about the Knicks, as you talked about the importance of the city, and I, I, I've been very encouraged by that. I, I still think that watching the Knicks when he's not on the floor is substantially less fun, but he's on the floor, you know, 28, 30 minutes a game, so you can enjoy that time. Yeah, and, and Carmelo's played really well. And, I mean, it's just been it's been really surprising and and really fun to watch. And, and, uh, and he's just a really, like you said, he's an engaging personality. He wants to be in the city. He, he makes crazy plays every night. I mean, last night he, he's pulling up from basically 
almost half court and draining threes and he's a lot of fun. So, so yeah, they're, you know, the, the Spurs and Warriors are, are great for a lot of reasons and, and the, the Knicks have been, you know, really been the, the surprise fun team for me to watch this year. Uh, and then the last question is, what are you, so we'll keep it only to the regular season. What are you looking forward to, to watching and to finding out the rest of the regular season? Oh, that's a great question. I guess there's a few things. I mean, I think the first thing is how the next month plays out. You know, we're only a month before the trade deadline, you know, outside of the, the very minor Ishmith trade. Uh, there really hasn't been any moves made. And, you know, you've got over the next month, you know, there, right now pretty much 25 of the teams in the league or so have a chance to make the playoffs. So it, it's kind of difficult for any team to really decide whether they're a buyer or a seller or what, what their course of action will be. And I, I'll be very fascinated to see where the league is when we wake up on February 15th, you know, after the All-Star game in Toronto, and we've got that four days between then and the trade deadline to see where things are going to go from there and how the league is going to, to shake out in terms of, you know, what guys are going to be on the market. Um, will teams like Washington that have struggled and, you know, will they, will they get better or will they look to sell? Well, it seemed like New Orleans looked to sell pieces. Well, Phoenix finally trade Marky Morris. Will Milwaukee maybe trade some pieces if uh, if they continue to struggle? You know, will Houston blow it up if they can't turn things around? Well, uh, you know, you can kind of go down the list. There's 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 a lot of teams that are kind of stuck in no man's land right now, and it will be interesting to see what happens to them. I'm very curious to see how the playoff race takes out in the Eastern Conference. Outside of the Cavs, I mean, I know we spent the beginning of this talking about how the rest of the East doesn't have anyone that can stand up to Cleveland. But what it does have is a group of teams from two to about 11 that is pretty darn good and, 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 and is, is full of interesting and, and varying teams that, that can all finish probably anywhere from second or third to 10th. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested to see how, how that shakes out. And, and in the West, I think there's a lot of teams that are kind of at a crossroads. You look at Memphis, you look at Houston, you look at Sacramento, you, you kind of wonder, you know, what, what is going to happen with those teams over the next few weeks, the next few months? You know, are they going to get the ship righted? Are they going to decide to punt? Are they, are they just going to kind of muddle along where they are? You know, it, it just feels like there's a – outside of those top four or five teams we mentioned earlier – it just feels like the league is full of question marks, and I'm really, I'm really curious to see how those questions are answered between now and now and first now in February 18th when the trade deadline passes, and then between now and the end of the regular season um, when we see how things shake out as far as the playoff race goes. Yeah, I agree with all that. The only thing I'll add is I'm intrigued to see how there are basically three trade markets that exist right now. There's three timelines. So there's the present one before the deadline. Then there's between, basically between the uh, the end of the season and the moratorium. So that's when certain guys can be traded, certain guys can't. And then when the off-season craziness really starts. And I'm fascinated to see tactically what teams choose to strike in which places. Because I think that the incentives and the trade-offs are going to be really different between those three and that isn't to say that anyone is right or wrong it always depends on the offers what's on the table but how that resolves I think we're going to see some league and franchise swings based on when teams decide to do what they do 
I agree with that. And if we're going to go that far out, the other thing I'm very fascinated about is to see what number the NBA salary cap comes in at. And something that I've been telling people for a while is the NBA almost always estimates a decent chunk lower than what the cap turns out to be. And I think the projected number for this year is something around 80, 89 million. Mm-hmm. And I'm personally in my head thinking it's going to be a lot closer to 95. And which changes a lot of things. Which changes a lot of things. And I, you know, we usually don't find that number out until pretty late in the day on June 30th. And I am going to be, or maybe later than that. No, I, I think it's, well. It's after the, the moratorium. Morning, but, it's after oh, that's the... right. It's after the moratorium. That's right. It's after the moratorium. It's shortly before midnight of the end of the moratorium, we usually find out. And I will be very, very curious to see where that number comes in. And if it does come in significantly higher, how that impacts how a lot of this, this summer goes. Because this, this, this free agency, with this salary cap skyrocketing and the, the numbers that are going to get thrown around, it's just going to be so much fun because people are going to be losing their minds about what guys are getting paid. And it's, it's just going to be very fun to sit back and watch the insanity unfold of basically every team in the league having a giant chunk of change to spend and no one having any real idea from the team side or from the observer side of what's going to happen when it all starts to play out. And it's, it's so ludicrous. Tom Ziller wrote about it first, and I, I'm mad that I didn't write it first, the idea that the audit should be complete before free agency starts, because I think this is the year where that's going to run haywire over somebody. And I don't know who it's going to be. I have a pet theory. It relates to a piece that I wrote for the Sporting News, if you guys maybe the most read piece that I've done for them of who that team might be. But I think that if it goes up as much as you think, and I, I agree with you that that's a distinct possibility, and I, I might write about that at some point, but... That is crazy that, you know, that, that we're, you're going to have so much because this is the, a longer moratorium than last year. You're going to see a lot of things get settled, and then all of a sudden the apple cart's going to get slightly tilted, and all of these things are going to be slightly different at a point when the commitments have already been made. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a good point Tom made, and it, it's going to be a lot of fun, like I said, to watch it play out because you talk to people around the league, and no one's quite sure how this – how this summer is going to go, and it's just going to be a, a crazy couple weeks to see where all these guys go and how things shake out, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. The only thing we know is that guys are going to get paid. We know that. <laughs> we definitely know that. That's very true. Well, thanks so much for taking time. Always a pleasure. Likewise, man. I'm always happy to talk to you. Looking forward to doing it again soon. Thanks again to Tim Bonteps for taking the time to come on. You can read him at the Washington Post, and you can follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps, T-I-M-B-O-N-T-E-M-P-S. If you're interested and have not read his piece on the Nets in particular yet, definitely do that. It is a really comprehensive history of kind of how all that went down. And I love talking to Tim. I thought that the discussion with LeBron and everything else was, was really fun, and I wanted to take a little bit of time. I've done a couple of these, what I'm calling monologues, after them, and I want to take a little bit of time, this one, to pay tribute to the guys who are now known as the starters, but for me will always be the Basketball Jones. And they're celebrating their 10-year anniversary next week, 
And I've mentioned this a little bit before, but I was actually a listener of the Basketball Jones in the single digit episodes. I think it was seven. It might have been six or eight. I honestly don't remember at this point. It was 10 years ago. And they were at that point, the really the first people, at least that I experienced, that really put voice to the idea of doing a basketball podcast. They did it because they loved it. And that back then it was Jay Skeets, Tass Mellis, and Jason Doyle. And they have since added, of course, Trey Kirby and Lee Ellis. And then now they, of course, have a bigger just kind of overall operation at NBA TV. But they were really important for me because it showed that people talking about basketball was something that not only was worth listening to, but might eventually be worth doing myself. And I had actually gotten into basketball pretty recently at that point. That was my junior year of college. I, While I watched a little bit when I was younger, I really fell in love with the sport my freshman year of college. And I loved listening to it. It was something that when I would walk to class, I would listen to most days. And I, I just really enjoyed it. And it has been a thrill since then to be able to meet them a few times just because now we run in similar circles. Great guys. And I, I just wanted to take a, take a second to do that. I've, I've said before... I think here, definitely on Twitter, that Bill Simmons is the reason why I thought that writing about sports was a legitimate possibility for me moving forward, just because he was the example that showed that was possible. And the Basketball Jones, now the starters, they did that with podcasting. And I, in all likelihood, I wouldn't be here without them. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without them. And I, I really do appreciate that. And it's it's great that they are contributing their voice to this community. They bring so much life and so much humor and and really good analysis too. And I, I'm so I'm really thrilled with the success that they've had. And I wish them absolutely nothing but the best. So thank you so much to the to those guys, both the original three and the new additions. And thank you for listening to my show. I mean, it's it real. I really do appreciate it. If you have any insight, you can reach out to me. Twitter's probably the best way. Danny Larue, D A N N Y L E R O U X. You can also email me, MBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. Days like today, when I've recorded three podcasts in the last, like, I don't know, 15 hours, that can be a little bit hard, but, you know, I try to get to stuff eventually. So I really do appreciate it. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. I, as I, some people don't know this, download every episode, even if you're not going to listen to it. If, if you download it and then delete it, I, I would prefer you listen. But if you do that, I still get some benefit from that. Same thing with Dunked On and whatever. I hope you listen. But at least if you do that, that's a nice way of showing it because we do get download numbers. So that does help us. So I really do appreciate it. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and embrace the day, people. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.
Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.